Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Uh, I want to remind you, actually, I need to remind the men in the room that uh, we're going to be doing our men's breakfast a week early this month. We're going to be doing it this coming Sunday as opposed to the second Sunday. And that's really to accommodate a special speaker. Uh, Pastor Tom Hovestal is going to be coming and speaking at the men's breakfast this Saturday. And he's going to be speaking on becoming a man of the times. How do we deal with the times that we're living in? Now, I've had more than one lady come up to me and say to Chad, I'm going to be coming to the men's breakfast this coming <laughs> Saturday. I get that. But men, have we ever gone to a women's event? No. I'm just saying, okay? I'm just saying. Looking forward to being with Tom this coming Saturday at 7.30. So a police officer pulled aside a, a driver. He asked for his license and registration. The driver said, well, what's wrong, officer? I didn't go through any red lights. I wasn't speeding. Could you tell me what the problem was? And, and the officer said, no, you weren't doing any of those things. You weren't speeding. You didn't go through a red light. But the officer said, I saw you waving your fist as you swerved around the lady that was driving in the left lane. He said, I further observed your flushed and angry face as you shouted at the driver of that Hummer who just cut you off, and how you pounded your steering wheel when the traffic came to a stop near the bridge. The driver said, well, is that a crime officer? No. But when I saw that Jesus loves you and so do I a bumper sticker on the car, I figured the car had to be stolen. There's a word for this kind of behavior. It's a word I know that you're familiar with. It's a word I know you've heard before. It's a word I don't even like to talk about, but it's going to be necessary for us to talk about it this morning. That word is hypocrisy. And I, I hate hypocrisy. I especially hate it when I'm the hypocrite. It's embarrassing. It's when we do or rather say one thing, we act in another way. The word itself is interesting. It was used in ancient Greek culture to describe an actor, someone who was hiding behind a mask. They were hiding behind the mask to not reveal who it was was really underneath. And this is how actors were referred to in Greek culture as hypocrites. The word itself, hippo, means under, hypo, like hypodermic needle, under, the other part of the word, krene, means judgment. It's by your very actions you're placing yourself under judgment. Again, if it's one thing I hate, it's hypocrisy, especially when I'm the hypocrite. And you know, it's not like we stop sinning whenever we become Christians. So at some point or another, by our actions, we will often deny what we profess to believe. That's a problem because we don't just stop sinning when we become Christians. The scriptures are clear. We will continue sinning until Christ comes back. So what I want to talk about this morning is, well, how do I keep from becoming a hypocrite? I still have to share the gospel. I'm compelled to do it, even though I know my behaviors don't always match up to what I say that I believe. The passage I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter 7. We'll be looking at John 7.53 through 8.11. And I'm thankful that uh, 
I have a wonderful and gracious Savior. And this morning we'll see these Pharisees and these scribes and, and how they're conniving together in this passage. John chapter 7, we'll read verses 53 through 811. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 7, starting with verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You may be seated. We're again continuing this morning our march through the book of John. The book of John was written so that we would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We took a break last uh, couple of weeks, and starting next Sunday, we're actually going to be moving towards the cross, moving towards the cross and then the resurrection. But I want to continue this morning this part of the book of John. It's an interesting section. If you look in your Bible, there may actually be a note that says that this was not included in the earliest manuscripts. Now, That's simply saying that in the oldest manuscripts we have, this section in John was not there, most likely because this had been continued on orally and had not been included. And one of the scribes, one of those people who were copying the text, they made the decision, since John was the one talking about this, let's include it here in the corpus of Scripture. So we have it now, and we can learn a lot from it. And this morning I want to talk about this subject of hypocrisy. Because we learn some things as we go through it. And I'd like to look at it this way. I want to look at these characters that come up in this text. First, we see the accusers. And I want to ask the question, how do we see others? And then secondly, let's take a look at the woman and ask the question, well, how do we see ourselves? Are we willing to believe what Jesus has said about us? And then let's talk about how does this help us in the means of engaging the culture around us? How can we Humbly engage others. Remember, not being a hypocrite doesn't mean you have to stop sinning. We're going to sin. The question is the the humility that comes with our lives and how we conduct ourselves, especially around an unbelieving world. So let's start with these accusers. Now, according to the text, it said Jesus had departed from the crowd. He was with before. Prior to this, he'd been with a large crowd, he'd left them, he'd gone to the Mount of Olives. But then early in the morning, he returns to the temple courts, and people came to him. They wanted to be taught by him. Jesus, at this point, uh, was known among the people 
for what he could teach, and his teaching had authority with it. And he began to teach them. Then right in the middle of Christ's teaching, right among the the people whom Christ was teaching, these scribes and Pharisees show up. These were people that needed each other. The Pharisees were the experts in the law. However, the scribes were some of the few who were trained to both read and write. So they spoke to each other. They needed each other. The scribes could often give the information that the Pharisees needed to further deduce what is the meaning of the law. How do people need to be obeying it? So the Pharisees made good use of the skills of the scribes. Now they had forcefully brought this woman in front of Jesus. Then they directly addressed Jesus And they have a clear intent they want to trap him. They explain the offense. They explain what they believe is the proper response according to the law. She was actually caught, the text says, in the act of adultery. And according to the law, she should be stoned. But we see... Uh, an explanation from John that these men, they had these ulterior motives in what they were doing. They weren't so much interested in the law being fulfilled as they were interested in trapping Jesus. Ultimately, they were looking to his execution. They want to bring charges against Jesus. But you'll note immediately there's some problems if you think about the approach that the crowd has. Namely, that adultery is not a sin that one commits solo. And the fact they caught her in the act means they know exactly who the man was. But the man is noticeably absent. Now, either he ran away and escaped, or he's just not there, that they're just unconcerned with who the man is. There's a good chance, but they didn't bother saying that, you notice. There's a good chance these men are simply revealing their chauvinism in focusing solely on this woman. But the law is really clear on this. And take a look at the Old Testament law in Leviticus 20.10. It says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, look, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Another problem is the law expected if a person witnessed someone about to commit a sin, that compassion would Try to prevent the sin from happening. I mean, that's the whole point here. That's the point of the law. Let's prevent people from doing things that don't please God. But these witnesses, neglecting their moral obligation to give guidance to the woman, they just want to catch her and use her. Then starting in verse 4, it says, this is the scribes and the Pharisees speaking, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone to death such women. Notice it doesn't say anything about the men. What then do you say? Now, they were asking this in an attempt to trap him so that they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. The motives are revealed. Jesus knows he's being challenged and he's got a very strange response. He bends over and wrote on the ground with his finger. Well, why? And and what did he write? And, And why does the text not tell us what it was Jesus wrote? 
Because, see, this was more about the execution of Jesus than it was about the woman. These people knew the law. They, they weren't wrong about its interpretation, but they, again, missed the reason for the law. The law was intended to spell out this is the kind of behavior that pleases Jesus, that pleases God, but that's not what's happening here. And again, one of the greatest mysteries is we don't have any idea what it was Jesus wrote in the dirt. There's some speculation. Some said maybe he wrote down what it said in Exodus 23.1, that you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. That is, a witness with the intent of malice, doing something rotten towards someone. It's, it's just that. It's speculation. And perhaps what's more significant is, certainly in the eyes of the writer, is not what he had written, but perhaps that he had written. There was another time in the Bible in which God wrote with his finger. Look at Exodus 31, verse 18. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Now, if he had written that or something along those lines, this would then be another pronouncement of him saying, I am God, using his finger to write the law. That would also include his own refusal uh, in pronouncing judgment in this situation. But the crowd that had gathered persisted. Then Jesus speaks to the crowd, starting at the end of verse 7. He said, Whoever among you is guiltless may be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible. Because at first glance, it sounds like that if you are going to execute what the law required, and if you've ever committed a sin, which we all have, then you cannot fulfill the law. Now, that doesn't make sense. But Jesus is making a reference, and we have to look back to understand what he means here. We've got to look at Deuteronomy 13, 7. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 17, 7. And it says there, the hand of the witnesses. Listen to this carefully. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, this passage commands that in the case of a stoning, if someone is to be put to death by stoning, that the people who have to throw the stone first are those who caught them in the act. They're the ones that are to throw the stones first, and, and this is key, they cannot be participants in the crime themselves. Now, all these men, these Pharisees and these scribes, women didn't hold these positions. These were all men. And what Jesus is saying to this crowd is that you are in no position to execute judgment on this woman. Now, some have wrongly tried to use this passage to abolish the death penalty, but Jesus never tells them, and this is key, he never tells them not to throw a stone. 
In fact, he invites them to throw a stone with the condition that they themselves have not committed the same sin. Had they, committed them, had they themselves committed the same sin, then guess what? They shouldn't be alive to tell about it. They should have been stoned themselves. So it doesn't make sense that you would abolish uh, the, um, the death penalty on this passage. But, but after he speaks, he writes again. So this is the second time he bends over, starts to write. And this stalls the crowd. It gives them a little time to think about what they wanted to do here. He addressed their social standards and their culture. That, and it's not totally unlike our own, that they were very quick to condemn the women when they commit these kinds of crimes. But they, the men are noticeably absent when they've done the same thing. Condemning women for promiscuity and much more than men. Then look at what it says in verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. They start slinking away. You can almost see their shoulders dropping, and they're staring at their feet. And the older men, maybe they're a little older and a little wiser, they slink off first. And then the younger men, seeing what the older men had done, seeing their wisdom, seeing their ability to swallow their pride, decide, well, we don't want anything to do with this either. Their hearts, fortunately, were not completely hardened. The men showed their sensitive consciences, and one by one they file away. I would imagine maybe the oldest among them went first, the ones the others were looking to. Their sinfulness was exposed. They're probably stunned. They're embarrassed. Hypocrisy has that effect on people. Shamed. And one commentator stated it this way. When one turns on the light, all the rats, the bats, and the bed bugs crawl away. So even though the woman is guilty, the crowd drops the case. And these hostile men, they've completely missed the love and the grace that Christ brought. The purpose of the law, again, was to show man's inability to keep the law. That was the men, and, and everyone had over a thousand years to understand, wow, this law, we can't keep it. From the time the law was given, about 1,400 years before this moment with Christ, Instead, these religious police are preoccupied with people's behavior. And by the way, if you don't get God's grace, you'll always be preoccupied with behavior. It's called self-righteousness. When we think it's our behavior and how we act that makes us righteous, that is not the case. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are declared righteous. And then no matter what you do, you'll be forgiven for it. And you remain righteous because you are in Christ. And when the Father looks down on you, he doesn't see the rotten stuff you and I do. He sees the righteousness of his own son, Jesus Christ. So then how do we treat people when they don't meet our expectations, when we know they're not living up to God's standards? And, and the world out there who's got a completely different worldview than we do, 
who does things completely differently. You know, I've mentioned before, I was reminded of it this past week, when we share the gospel with anybody, our attitude has to be this, that we are one beggar telling another beggar where they can find food. We're just beggars telling other beggars, here's where we found food. And we don't ask people who don't believe what we do to live up to biblical standards. That doesn't even make sense. We should be thankful things aren't worse than they are and not bemoaning how rotten things are. But people with religious obsessions, they don't see themselves this way. And and Christians even today who take godly righteousness seriously rarely see themselves as fellow sinners because we're biased. It's very interesting. They've done studies on this to prove it. That we have this, what you could call bias, blind spots. That we cut ourselves more slack than we give to others. And there were some researchers who actually did a long-term study on our ability to do this. It's pretty fascinating. And the results of that study appeared in, a, in the New Yorker, written by a guy named Jonah Lehrer. Talked about the mismatch between how we evaluate ourselves and how we evaluate others. And it said, when considering the irrational choices of a stranger, for instance, we are forced to rely on how they behave. We see their biases from the outside, which allows us to glimpse their errors. However, when assessing, listen to this, when assessing our own bad choices, we tend to engage in elaborate introspection. We study our motivations. We search for relevant reasons. We lament our mistakes to therapists and then ruminate on the beliefs that led us astray. We were led astray. It wasn't me. As an example, if we drive crazy through traffic, it's because we have an important meeting or we don't do it that often and so forth. But if someone cuts us off in traffic, there's one simple, observable explanation. They're a jerk. That's it. There's nothing else. Then they conclude our biased blind spots are unconscious. They remain invisible to self-analysis, and resistant to intelligence. So being smarter doesn't necessarily help you see your own junk. As a matter of fact, it probably adds to the problem. This is so true in my own life, it isn't even funny. This is terrible. I'm going to share it with you anyway. Um, you know, the, probably the most important place that I need to get to through the week is guess. Guess what is my biggest event through the week that I need to make sure I get here on time for? Hey, you're looking at it. So what it's like in my household, in my life on a Sunday morning, like my hands are getting cold just thinking about it. Because I got to get here. I got to get here at a certain time. I got to make sure I'm mic'd up. Got to make sure everything's ready to go. Got to get in there and pray with the men. This is all wonderful stuff. But you know what? If I, if I don't leave the house by like 8-12, Things get a little dicey. And all of a sudden, my greatest enemy in the world is that person going the speed limit in front of me. (laughs) And they don't know what they're doing. They are keeping the Lord's work from happening. (laughs) And I'm angry, and I am beating the steering wheel, and they don't get it. They don't get it. They don't know what my morning was like. They don't know what I went through the night before. They don't know any of that stuff. They're They're just jerks. But then, on any other given day, when I've got plenty of time in front of me, 
And I'm just in, just praising the Lord going down the road. You know, I'm just driving. And the birds are singing. The sun is out. And it's a beautiful day. But somebody's right up on my rear end. Well, shame on them. <laughs> if they had just left on time and given themselves a little margin, they wouldn't be in the big rush they're in right now. I can't help it that they are in the shape that they're in. Maybe I'll be gracious and pull over and let them by. But boy, the truth hurts, doesn't it? And this story makes me question my responses toward people who don't fit my religious expectations. Are we religious police? Do we, do we just cut people off? Can we get vitriolic towards people on social media that don't have the same politics we do? The only way you can avoid the hypocritical trap is to keep an attitude of humility. And we have to keep that attitude when we share the gospel with others. Again, we're beggars telling other beggars where to find food. So when we look at others, especially unbelievers, as fellow sinners, can you see unbelievers as just fellow, fellow sinners who are unforgiven? So look at others, especially unforgivers, with that, that kind of humble attitude. And I want to turn the atten our attention to the woman now. How do we see ourselves? And Jen, then Jesus, he, he respectfully turns his attention to this woman. The text says he stood up straight and began to speak, starting in verse 10. Jesus stood up straight and said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She replied, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. And from now on, do not sin anymore. This, and this address of woman, it's, uh, it sounds disrespectful. It's not intended to be. At that time, that was a, a common address for women. Um, and it was respectful. And he didn't ask her if she was guilty. He knew she was guilty. But as the judge in this case, he was way more interested in the accusers than in her sin. And she gets off with a warning. Don't do this again. Jesus is not going easy on sin. All her sins would be taken upon him on the cross. He would die in her place. So no one has condemned her according to her answer to Jesus. The accusers are all gone. He simply tells her, neither do I. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. And God himself declared in his love and mercy that he didn't condemn her. And when we see Jesus' love and mercy, he doesn't condemn us either. And when we acknowledge our sin and when we trust in what Jesus has done on our behalf, we do not stand condemned. We acknowledge our sin and we trust in what he's done and we're declared innocent. We're declared innocent. And as Christians, that's our identity. We're forgiven sinners. And out of love for Christ, we do our best to stop sinning. Jesus always sets the bar high. He never encourages sin. He never says, it's, it's, I know you'll mess up. Just No, he doesn't do that. He knows we'll mess up. We do our best to stop sinning. And every time we do, we hurt ourselves, we hurt others, but it never changes our standing before God. We're declared righteous. So the proper response to mercy received on account 
of past sins is purity in the future. That's how we show God that we love him. So a good sum up of, of this event would be that reviewing this case, Jesus brought forth the judgment, stone her. Unfortunately for the Pharisees, he had required, as the law had stated, that the witnesses be qualified and they are not. And only God truly stands in the judge of our sins. He's the only one that knows the whole story, either for you or for anyone else. So then, well then how do I, as opposed to what this crowd did, well how, how can we humbly engage? We're called to engage a culture. We know we're not perfect. So how do we do this with humility? I'm going to suggest three things, a few ways to do that. And first of all, Look once at your sin, just once. In other words, always remember that you and I are still sinners. Chad Cowan is still evil, still thinks evil thoughts, still says wicked things, still does wicked things. I'm being made holy, at the same time declared righteous, legally before God. But I still get mad at people driving slow in front of me. I still need forgiveness every day, but I don't dwell there. See, we accept we're sinners. We don't forget that we're sinners, but don't get stuck in your sin. Don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck in your past. God's not holding that against you. And how do you keep from doing that? Well, for everyone, look at your sin. Look twice at your Savior. Look at how merciful Jesus was to this adulteress. He washes away sin. He makes people new. He doesn't intend for us ever to writhe in guilt over our past. Whatever you did this morning, you kicked the dog, you screamed at the kids. It's the morning you're trying to get everybody out of the house and trying to get everybody here at the same time. It's stressful. That's why we have that moment of confession, see, before we go into worship. We all know we need it. Kevin knows that I need it. People may bring up your past, and you may not be able to shake thoughts out of your head, but all that sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. Jesus became the adulterer. Jesus became the porn addict. He became the child molester. He became all that for us because all the sin was put on him. He became the abortion doctor. He became all those things because all the sin of the world was placed on him. So look once at your sin, look twice at your Savior. And then third, love sinners but hate sin. Love sinners and hate sin. Now, I, the first time I heard somebody say that, I, I thought it was kind of dumb. But there is someone that I've practiced this very, very well with. And that person is me. See, I can still love me very much even though I know that I sin. And I know the crummy stuff I do. And C.S. Lewis has this genius section in the book Mere Christianity where he gets this. And he says, however much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. He said there had never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. 
He goes on to say, Consequently, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid, but it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves. Being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping if it is any way possible that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. See, we want to love the other person like we love ourselves. We want to give that person grace like we give ourselves grace and seek to understand before we fly off the handle. So then seek humble engagement over hostile hypocrisy. Seek humble engagement over this hostile hypocrisy. Every time you point the finger, you've got what? You've got four pointing back at you. And no one does a better job at loving sinners than Christ himself. I just want to close with this. I'm still, God loves this wretch named Chad Cowan. Um, and you know, now that I'm a dad, I've learned, <clears throat> I've learned that there's some bodily excretions I can live with and some I can't. Really, there's just one main one that really gives me a hard time, and it's, it's snot. I hate to say it. It's just it hits that gag reflex. And, you know, I got a little boy, and he gets a cold sometimes. And, you know, it's this number, and it's this number, and it's, sometimes it's the bubble. <laughs> and then, but then I come in the door. And even if that guy has a horrible cold, and even though the nose is running, you know what? When he runs up and says, Daddy, and throws up his hands, I'm going to pick him up. And I'm going to put my arms around him. And even though it's tough with all that junk, I'm still going to do it because everything in my heart wants to. I love him deeply and I enjoy his love for me. And I'm reminded that though I'm sick with sin, God loves me deeply and desire that I run to him as a son crying, Abba, Father. Please pray with me. Lord, we are all... We're all sick with sin. And Lord Jesus, you gave us the cure. You gave us yourself. And we thank you that you do not hold our sins against us. That when we simply put our faith in what you accomplished on the cross, Lord Jesus, all the other stuff just falls away. You love us where we are. And God, we come to you screaming, Father, and you pick us up. And you put your arms around us and you heal us. And Lord, I pray that we would have a week where we humbly accept that we are sinners, that we humbly look at others and say that is either a forgiven or an unforgiven sinner. That when we share the gospel, we wouldn't do it with a sense of shame, but with a joy knowing that we can do this because, Lord Jesus, you've died for us. Give us the confidence and the courage in what you've accomplished on our behalf. And it's in your name we pray.